Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Friday, February 9th, and we're glad to have you along for our regular journey through all things politics in Vermont and a review of the week's top stories every Friday. As I've said, it's Black History Month, and we will spend uh, a, a good amount of time on this fascinating on a fascinating subject that I used to know nothing about. Our first guest, uh, Professor Pamela Walker of UVM, will tell us about a project that uh, using the, the U.S. Postal Service it, during the Civil Rights Movement to send food from the North to the South to the to sustain families there. It is part of our effort to understand Black history and what uh, Black History Month means, how we can understand it, and take a long moment to immerse ourselves in that part, powerful part of the American story. At 10 a.m., it's our regular expert on all things Washington, D.C., with Bob Ney, and wow, it's a lot this week. At 10.15, we'll talk to, seven days, uh, to a seven days reporter about her story about what it's like to live with a food journalist. Hint, uh, your car is ever dirty and sticky and uh, dinner is an ever-changing affair. And at 10.30, we'll head outdoors for what the outdoor business looks like in Vermont, from mountain biking to hiking. It's become a huge industry, and uh, we've got some experts to fill us in. All that and more on today's show. You can hear us at AM 550 and on all the various FM stations, not to mention our podcast at WDEVradio.com, which appears magically on the website shortly after the show. We welcome your calls and emails. The number to call is 244-1777. Send your email to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. I will see them, and I promise to respond to all of them. And with that, this Friday review of the week's news, uh, the Governor Phil Scott's administration offered more details this week on their plans to set up a temporary temporary emergency shelters for unhoused Vermonters exiting the state's pandemic-era motel housing program. This issue just does not seem to go away. The administration says it's standing up a shelter at the Waterbury Armory, and that has uh, raised some hackles in Waterbury. Uh, the Department of Children and Families is moving forward with plans for a family shelter at the former Austin School for the Deaf in Brattleboro and is working to stand up three emergency shelter apartments in central Vermont with service provider Capstone Community Action, according to DCF Commissioner Chris Winters, uh, who testified at the State House about all of this uh, this week. The department could also establish to Three sites with mobile shelter units containing 46 beds each, but it hasn't settled on locations for these, Winter said. The conversation about this issue in the Senate Appropriations Committee led to a tirade in a column by Vermont journalist and blogger John Walters this week, who took the committee to task, especially Northeast Kingdom Senator Bobby Starr, uh, for his language around describing uh, those experience, experiencing homelessness. 
All I can say is this issue is not over, and we will continue uh, on the show. Governor Scott uh, signed S-160 into law uh, this week, giving municipalities hit hard by the July flooding a break on some of the education property taxes they owe to the state. The bill would reimburse municipalities for the amount they owe to the statewide education fund from properties that got an abatement on their taxes due to flood damage. It is similar to a measure passed in the wake of Tropical Storm Irene in 2011, uh, and the bill was sponsored by uh, Central Vermont Senator Ann Cummings, and it's expected to help Central Vermont cities like Montpelier and Barrie that have received uh, dozens of abatement requests from the flooding. And this just in from the governor on Twitter of all places. You'll recall that early in the legislative session, the governor and legislators of all stripes came together on a bill to increase the amount of housing in Vermont by, among other things, reducing the regulatory burden, mostly by removing certain projects from act jurisdiction And the governor is lamenting the fact that despite the tripartisan support, uh, that bill is not getting much of a hearing in the legislature so far this year. And he says that he he didn't threaten to veto other housing bills, but he was very critical of those not pushing and giving a hearing to uh, the bill that he proposed around uh, making it easier to build uh, infill housing. So I um, heard the last of that. Uh, I had the uh, misfortune or fortune, depending on your perspective, of watching the uh, Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, chaired by our own Bernie Sanders, uh, this week, in which he criticized the CEOs of major pharmaceutical companies for uh, high prices, monopoly power, and not to mention their own multi-million dollar uh, salaries. Uh, Bernie pledged uh, to do something about the high prices and uh, embarrass these fellows in front of a national TV audience. Uh, you could, you can still see it on Bernie's YouTube channel. Uh, it was live on Twitter and YouTube and on Bernie's website. Uh, he's getting a lot of mileage out of this, and um, they did not. Uh, he did not take my suggestion, which was a suggestion that the first question uh, to the panel of CEOs was, uh, how did you fly here today, uh, private or uh, commercial? I remember uh, when tobacco executives were hauled before Congress uh, and were asked that question, and it was the highlight of the hearing when they all said that they had flown uh, in private jets to, uh, to testify in front of Congress. Senator Sanders, also pledged not to vote for what he calls a nickel of new money uh, for Benjamin Netanyahu's Israeli government uh, in its uh, war in in the Gaza Strip against uh, Hamas. Bernie has increased that position over time, the Hamas attack on Israel in October. Uh, he's faced a lot of criticism from both sides, as has President uh, Joe Biden. Bernie's focused his ire on Netanyahu himself and his what he calls Netanyahu's right wing government over uh, what he calls this out of control killing of Palestinians, especially women and children. And uh, uh, Bernie continues to harp on that on that subject. 
And uh, it's just a fascinating role that Sanders is playing, and it deserves uh, more attention. We will give it that. And lastly, just as the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments about whether Donald Trump should be on the presidential ballot, a special counsel issued a report very, very critical of President Biden and about his memory. And uh, despite whatever your views on President Biden and Trump, it's a fascinating it's fascinating to watch the supporters of Biden and the critics of Biden use this report uh, as a as a kind of weapon to make Biden look stronger uh, or make him look weaker. And whatever you whatever you think about the presidential campaign, my prediction still holds true. It will only get crazier. We are back and uh, we are examining uh, Black History Month, among other issues uh, in in the civil rights movement that was so pivotal uh, in this nation's history. And our guest, as we do that, is Dr. Pamela Walker, Assistant Professor of African-American and Women's History at the University of Vermont, the grandchild and daughter of rural Mississippians. Her work examines motherhood, race, activism, benevolence, and political consciousness in 1960s era social movement networks. Her new book uh, coming out soon is called Signed, Sealed, Delivered, How Black and White Mothers Use the Box Project and the Postal System to Fight Hunger and Feed the Mississippi Freedom Movement. It will be out soon. The book tells the story of of ordinary black and white women's overlooked participation in the modern civil rights movement using one of the nation's largest federal agencies, the U.S. postal system, and it involves a Vermonter, which we will get to. Dr. Walker joins us now. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, um, and I, I've i learned so much in just preparing for this uh, segment, and it's just great to have you on the show. Before we get into the significance of Black history and, the, and Black History Month, can we talk about uh, your work and your upcoming book, Tell us, if you would, uh, about the Box Project. Absolutely. So, as as you mentioned, I'm I'm working on this book. It's based on my PhD dissertation, and I'm working on it with University of North Carolina Press. It should be out um, next year. Um, but I came to this project with a question. Um, you know, we know about civil rights marches. We know about the March on Washington and the Selma to Montgomery March. We know about major civil rights legislation that came and made a huge impact in people's access to the ballot box um, and access to the school systems um, and kind of desegregation. We know major civil rights leaders, Dr. King, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks. But I wanted to know how did ordinary women like my grandmothers who were raising about 20 children between the two of them and the Mississippi Delta in the 1960s. How did these women engage in civil rights? And to answer this question, or kind of part of the stumbling upon the answer of this question, uh, was through an organization called the Box Project, which was started by a Vermont pacifist to bring other mostly white New England women together who wanted to support civil rights 
Um, so this also is kind of telling me about how ordinary women in New England engage in civil rights. But she brings women together through um, various uh, community events to materially support women who in Mississippi were facing reprisals for attempting to register to vote or simply existing in Mississippi during the civil rights movement, the early 1960s. And she groups these women in Vermont and Massachusetts through her newsletters, um, telling them that we can help support the Mississippi movement by providing material aid, canned goods, um, clothing, uh, supplies for school. And so she organizes women. They each in their own individually, individual ways from their own households, start to pack up boxes um, full of clothing and canned goods and powdered milk. Um, and Virginia, the woman, the Vermonter who does this, Virginia Nave, she provides the New England women with the name of a Southern black family uh, living in Mississippi um, and the address of these families and, um, and individual women across New England, send their individual packages directly to the homes of poor Black families. And from there, a correspondence between families in the South and families in the North, specifically New England, began from the 1963 through the decade. And so that's the box project, but, and, and the project that kind of meets the material needs of families in the South, but it also meets the need for women and mothers in New England who are wanting to engage in the movement, who are wanting to connect with families that are different from them. And so this project and the letters that go back and forth between women in Mississippi and women in New England help me answer the question of how ordinary women are engaging. And it helps me answer the question of, you know, what's the daily experience like of engaging in the movement or living through the movement? when you're not necessarily, you know, a self-proclaimed activist, when you're just an ordinary person who, you know, empathize with various struggles that are going on, how do you engage in a way? And so this project um, and the discovery of this archive helps me, helps me answer that. Well, and, and I just found it fascinating. And I, I went and Googled Virginia Nave and uh, uh, two things. It, it, one sentence sticks out, uh, that from 1958 to 1964, she taught art at the Woodstock Country Private mm -hmm. School in Vermont, um, which is probably no longer there. But uh, and then and then secondly, and I don't know if this is part of your research, that that the idea for this box project sprang up on an airplane on the way to Geneva, Switzerland, where she was um uh, she and two African-American women were flying over to a conference there together, one of whom was Coretta Scott King. Now, I don't know if I have that right, but I thought that I'd run that by you. Well, sure. Yeah, I can I can give you a little backstory. So, yeah, Virginia, um, Virginia is born in South Dakota. She's um, uh, kind of becomes a child of the Great Depression. Um, she kind of moves around a lot, and ultimately, she's also an artist, so she lands in Greenwich Village during the 40s and then becomes a back-to-lander. Um, um, part of the story is a little fuzzy. I think she's connected with the Nearings, Helen and Scott Nearing, but she creates her own homestead with her husband, Lowell Nave, and 
Um, she becomes, um, through her kind of associations with New York City and as an artist and then her kind of sympathies actually as a child witnessing children in shanty towns in Oklahoma becomes really sympathetic to a lot of kind of economic justice movements. But she also hears about um, in the 1960s, 1961, um, she hears about a um, Women's Strike for Peace march. This is um, a group of women out of D.C. and New York who are calling for disarmament of nuclear weapons. As a Vermonter, she um, is interested in participating in this work, but she feels kind of rural um, isolation. So she helps to organize women to attend these disarmament peace talks. Um, first, this Women's Strike for Peace um, engagement in November of 1961. Then she becomes even more involved in Women's Strike for Peace. Um, a kind of leader in Vermont and New Hampshire um, that helps organize other women. And she becomes a leader. She uh, raises money for herself to participate in um, one of the Women's Strike for Peace uh, pilgrimages um, to Italy and then Switzerland. And on this this mar- this, uh, this disarmament um, conference in Europe, she meets uh, Coretta Scott King, who's a, who um, her history of pacifism is really important and interesting, and I think more people are learning about it as well. Um, but there was another woman on that on that conference, um, and her name was Claire Harvey, and she is a black woman um, from Jackson, Mississippi. Her family are funeral home directors, and so she has a lot of autonomy to be involved in local civil rights in a way that a lot of other local Blacks in Mississippi aren't, don't have the freedom and the flexibility. Her uh, clientele is exclusively Black, so the reprisals that she might face for being a leader in civil rights are not the same for, for other folks who are dependent on white patronage. But anyway, she is a civil rights leader and a pacifist, and on, at this, on the plane and over the the weekends of this this talk, Virginia meets these women. She's she hasn't had a lot of interaction with Southern Black activists, and it's really a transformative experience for her to hear about the poverty that's going on in the Deep South and in Mississippi specifically. And so, when she returns from this conference, she develops a correspondence with Coretta Scott King and Claire Collins Harvey. And she's, you know, asking, what can I do? I hear that there's poverty. I know that there's a movement going on. I don't know a lot, but how can I help? And Claire Collins Harvey and Coretta Scott King sent her the names of women who need material support. And from this small little correspondence of um, Virginia asking how can she help, um, developed this kind of web of interactions of Southern women and Northern women who are kind of meeting each other where they are across the country, providing material support. And so, you know, women in Mississippi who are wanting to participate in the movement, especially poor women who are living on plantations or, you know, attempting to try to make a way in this moment where the sharecropping system is dying and so they're looking for work, um, but also seeking, 
ways to, you know, feed their children and engage in civil rights, the material goods that are coming from women in New England are really crucial to, you know, co- they, these black women in the South cobbling together resources to make ends meet. Um, but yes, the story of Virginia meeting um, Claire Collins Harvey, Coretta Scott King, who are both big, you know, Southern black women pacifists at this time is true. And then it's those conversations um, and it's this international peace conference that really awakened Virginia Nave to the, the struggles for justice and rights in her own country. Wow. Well, you, you mentioned there's so much to, to unpack here. You mentioned the, uh, the famous Back to the Landers, Helen and Scott Nearing. Uh, I've read all those books, and it was um, fascinating to go back in time and go visit the home that they built down in uh, Stratton at Pikes Falls. Uh, that house is still there. It's being lived oh, yeah. in. Um, and uh, that that whole history of, of sort of the 40s and 50s in Vermont is, is also fascinating. I wonder uh, if before the we have to take our first break, if you could also set the stage for the box project by talking to us about the Mississippi freedom movement and what that was, because I think we have a lot of listeners who need a refresher course. Absolutely. So as a, as a historian of the civil rights movement, there are lots of debates on where we, where we should begin the story. Um, does it start in the, you know, in the 1930s when there's kind of African-American and race and labor movements happening does it start with Brown v. Board? Does it begin with, um, you know, the death of Emmett Till in 1955? Like, when do we begin the story? So there's long been, you know, movement and activity happening in, um, across the South. But in Mississippi, you know, they have dealt with racial repression um, that has repressed the movement in ways that are different from other parts of the South. Um, the kind of large sharecropping um, and disfranchisement that was going on in the 40s and 50s um, really gained national attention, particularly around the death of Emmett Till, who was killed for so-called, you know, whistling um, or making a gesture at a white woman um, store owner in Money, Mississippi. Um, there were sparks of various movements and activity happening in Mississippi and across the South. Um, but one of some of the major campaigns that kind of bring national attention to the Mississippi movement um, deal with the Freedom Riders testing uh, segregation and integration across the South starting in 1960. We also get these various attempts um, by an organization called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They're founded um, kind of an offshoot of the Freedom Riders and the sit-in movement. Um and they believe that Mississippi is, becomes this kind of training ground um, for democracy. It becomes this test site. And so student activists um, join with the local indigenous activists of Mississippi, Aaron Henry, um, Fannie Lou Hamer, um, and, and various leaders who had already, Maker Evers, who had already been on the ground doing this work, um, for decades prior to the students coming through. But the students really galvanize, um, galvanize the movement um, and bring kind of new and fresh energy um, and organizing potential to the movement. And so they're 
Uh, Bob Moses is one of the first activists who comes to Mississippi. He's a teacher from New York. Um, and he starts organizing in southern Mississippi and Macomb. And then in the 1963, they start to launch these campaigns for um, for various uh, voting rights. And this is what really sparked the movement um, that we kind of see visibly across the media and that we learn about Freedom Summer. Right. It's a major campaign of a lot of student activists. I wonder if I could just tell a quick personal story. In the early 1980s, I was a young uh, newspaper reporter at the Tennessean in Nashville. And uh, some really only 20 years or so uh, since the Woolworth lunch counter in downtown Nashville was was desegregated. And I was assigned to cover a reunion of the Freedom Riders who had come back Mm -hmm. to Nashville for a for a reunion at Vanderbilt University. There, in flesh and blood, was one of the leaders of the uh, movement, a young woman named Diane Nash. Mm-hmm. And I went back to the, the newsroom to write my story about meeting Nash, James Bevel, uh, John Lewis, uh, the, the, the great SNCC uh, leader and later congressman uh, from Fisk University was there. And... And uh, my editor told the story about how when he worked for the Justice Department during sit-ins that he had and begged the Freedom Riders uh, not to go on the Freedom Ride because they would be killed. And Diane Nash looked at a pile of paper over in the corner and said, uh, those are our last will and testaments, and uh, we are going on this Freedom Ride. And mm-hmm. I never forgot that story. And uh, I assume your research takes you into Diane Nash and all of those heroes. Absolutely. Um, I, I engage with the scholarship of these young people. You know, I think so much about the bravery um, of, of the young people who go and choose to participate in the movement, particularly a lot of these, these young kids. The, the interesting thing about Fisk um, as a historically black college and university is that, you know, many of the students had family ties in the South, but a lot of these students are coming from um, Detroit and Chicago. So they're not, they weren't as familiar with the experiences of segregation. And so many of these students were kind of taken back in time in so many ways. Um, and a lot of them combined with a lot of Southern leaders like Don Lewis, who was from Alabama and Diane Nash, who was from the North, organized and trained together around nonviolence. And then they also are connecting with local people, ordinary people in the rural Mississippi Delta and rural communities across the South to even gain a better understanding of their experiences. You know, when they go into Mississippi for Freedom Summer, which was a major voter registration campaign and voter education campaign in 1964, Many black and white students, they're living in the homes of local people who could face serious consequences. And so students and people who had lived in the Delta and lived in the South for many generations were willing to face the consequences um, in order to gain equal access to the ballot box um, and to, to live as full citizens. You know, it's 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 uh, I always like to refer listeners to ways that they can access all of this information at the risk of trivializing some of this incredibly serious and courageous work. 
you know, there was the recent Hollywood movie, The Green Book. There's the great movie with Gene Hackman called Mississippi Burning about about the death of uh, Mr. Goodwin Schwerner and Cheney, the civil rights workers who were murdered down there. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, sort of non-academic ways that that folks can sort of access all this this great history. Right. There's a lot of there's a lot of films and texts out there to engage um, with this work. I, I teach a class um, that looks at activism in the civil rights movement, and they engage with some of the kind of contemporary films that are out or films from the past 30 or 40 years. And they kind of hold up often, you know, they do their own kind of critical historical research to, you know, see which parts of the film are accurate versus inaccurate. And I think films are really, like Hollywood films are really great introductions. But my hope is that folks would engage in even some of the primary sources um, that these these texts really highlight. Um, I think there are incredible resources and documentaries. There's a documentary by PBS called Freedom Summer that you hear firsthand accounts from folks like Rena Schwerner, the wife of Michael Schwerner. You hear firsthand accounts of folks from folks like John Lewis and other student activists who are participating in this time, Bob Moses, um, and hearing about the training experiences. So I love that, that films offer an introduction um, but I encourage, you know, checking out some of these documentary films by PBS. Um, this one scholar, Stanley Nelson, has done a number of PBS um, documentaries about Freedom Summer and um, the Freedom Riders um, as a way to kind of get a little bit deeper and a little bit closer to the experience and the voices of folks who participated in the movement. Can you can you take us back to the Box Project for just a moment and, and talk to how it actually worked, uh, you know, too often we, we, we see television shows and we, you're, as you said, we sing Dr. King marching and, and there's a, there's a gloss that history and the media put over things. Mm. And we, we forget how hard it was. The weather was hot. Um, right. just go, just going to the post office as a, as a Southern black woman, uh, could, could hold certain dangers. So describe the process, uh, Virginia Nave in Vermont would pack up a care package and put it in the take to the post office in Woodstock, Vermont, and mail it to somewhere in, say, Jackson, Mississippi. How did that work? Right. Yeah. As I mentioned, you know, there are these these various networks at the height of the Box Project. Um, in the '60s, there were about ten thousand folks exchanging these goods and letters. Um, one of the first ways that Virginia kind of enlisted support, which she had, but she called a civil rights fair at her home in Jamaica, Vermont, Pikes Falls, where she got folks from the community to bring items, canned goods, clothing. And then she spent six months packing up these boxes along with some of her friends. And they would, uh, you know, enlist uh, friends to take a box anytime they came to visit her. They would publicize in the local newspaper that she was running this program and if they wanted names. Um, they could contact her. And so, yeah, folks would send their box at their local um, post office, and it would make it to some of these small towns, mostly in the Mississippi Delta. We're talking about communities of 500 people to 2,000 people, small plantation communities. 
Um, and there were, no matter the size of the town, there was a post office in each one of these towns. Now, many of these women were still living on the plantation. And so to receive a box, if you were living in Sidon, Mississippi, a town of about 600 people, um, onto your plantation where everyone knew everyone, these women were getting interrogated. One woman remembers her, the plantation owner who would surveil her boxes, asking, are you with the freedom movement? Like, why are you receiving a box from Connecticut or Massachusetts? And she would have to tell some story in order to receive the property that was rightfully hers. Other women would um, realize that they were receiving boxes, boxes and packages that had already been rummaged through or their letters had been opened and then resealed with pieces of tape. And part of this was because there was a robust kind of spy network in Mississippi called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission that was investigating civil rights activity um, and investigating anything from voter registration to anti-poverty support for poor black Mississippians. Because it was that risky um, to engage in the movement simply for bare necessities, let alone attempting to register to vote. And so one thing I think that my book does is show just how intertwined, you know, voting rights and the fight for hunger and basic needs are. Because women were receiving you know, reprisals, being thrown off the plantation for even communicating with folks who were from outside of the state. And so, you know, we know about the other types of risk. We know about the risk of civil rights leaders who were marching. But to be an ordinary woman who was communicating with someone from Connecticut or Massachusetts and Vermont from your, you know, really oppressive regime um, in rural Mississippi was risky, too. Um, and I think that's, you know, what my project bears out is that, you know, women's things are being poured out simply for existing and communicating and receiving resources that went around the local power structures for their own day, daily survival. How did you, just before our, our last break, um, how did you unearth all this information? Uh, did you spend time down there? Uh, what libraries were you in? Uh, how did you come across all of this, and how did you organize it? Yeah, so I, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, my my parents are from the Mississippi Delta. They're from Sunflower County, one of the battlegrounds of the movement. And um, I had always wanted to know about their experiences in the movement. And um, I came across this project really from a conversation with my grandmother, um, she was wearing an apron that was created from a quilt, and she told me that she received this quilt from her box lady, or the, the pieces of fabric from her box lady in Connecticut. I never heard of this. This was about 10 years ago now. I never heard of the box project. Um, and so I started digging and realized that this was a robust network, and the papers had just been donated to uh, a small archive in Mississippi. And so not only am I, you know, familiar with the place because my family is from there and I spent many holidays, but I also, you know, found the archive and have been doing the research for over a decade, examining these letters and correspondence. And I'm also kind of realizing through this work, the robust network in the way that civil rights is connected to anti-poverty. 
And so I've done research and archives across the country that are thinking about anti-poverty, but also civil rights is connected to pacifism. And so that that revelation led me to Swarthmore's Peace Collection. I've done oral histories with women in Mississippi who were connected to the project. I've done oral histories with women um, in New England who are connected to the project. So there's, you know, from this small kind of family connection, there's been a large amount of robust research that for me has been connecting the kind of webs of activism in the 1960s that ordinary women were thinking about civil rights, anti-poverty, and pacifism and building peaceful, sustainable communities um, in the South and in, in New England. Uh, there's never enough time, Dr. Walker, uh, but uh, I wanted to ask you, we're in the middle of Black History Month. Uh, I know this can be uh, sort of a delicate issue because why should we set aside just a month to think and and respect Black history? But I, I So I wonder, what do you think of, what are you thinking about these days in the middle of Black History Month? Yeah, I think... Um... Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting question, um, partly because, you know, as a historian of Black history, I'm always reading and engaging with Black history and working with students, kind of thinking about, about Black history. So, yeah, for me, Black history um, is a year-round thing. Um, but that's not always the case. And I think the history of, of Black History Month, which started out um, – in the 1920s as Negro History Week by a historian named Carter G. Woodson, it was to make sure that there was an opportunity, you know, in this era when he had founded it during Jim Crow, to make sure that there was an opportunity to pause and reflect about the contributions of African Americans. And I still think there's value um, and pausing and reflecting about the contributions of African-Americans in this country. Um, you know, many people, and I, I agree that African-American history is American history. And so having the opportunity to do that, but making sure that, you know, it doesn't just end there and that we go deeper and go further than um, kind of the common and traditional stories that we always hear every year but try to access more broadly the Black experience and what the Black experience has been in this country and the diversity of the Black experience is, I think, one way that we can um, really honor what Dr. Carter G. Woodson was trying to do nearly 100 years ago. And so, you know, he the, the organization that he founded, which um, kind of birthed Negro History Week and then Black History Month, um, has themes that come out every year. This organization is called the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. And each year they have a theme. And this year is Black arts. And so I think one way to kind of engage with this history is to kind of think about the artistic contributions of African-Americans, to think about um, how, you know, artist movements have often run parallel to social movements. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just one way that I've been thinking about it is how do we engage beyond the traditional stories and how do we dig deeper and engage with some of the themes that um, have long um, been a part of the Black experience. I wonder if I could do just that and ask you about one of those lesser known stories. Uh, 
and a, a sort of a hero of mine growing up was a, a woman, a, a, a not very well-known uh, member of Congress from Brooklyn, whose name was Shirley Chisholm, who ran for president in 1972. And I know that you know a lot about her, and uh, she was a hero to so many. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us about Shirley Chisholm. Yeah, Shirley Chisholm is a leader in women's activism, welfare rights activism, um, and education activism. She is from of West Indian descent, grew up in Brooklyn, um, and was the first black woman to um, run for president. Um, she was a congressperson as well. Um, and was the first black woman in Congress. And I think she has been such a touchstone, I think, for a lot of black women uh, who are interested and invested in making a difference and a contribution in their local communities. She is quoted with um, by saying, I think if they, if, if they didn't bring, they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And we yeah. see, you know, it becomes a it becomes a little catchy saying that a lot of people, um, you know, put on T-shirts and things like that. But I think it's really, really valuable a, a way to think about the ways that Black women and Black women activists have made spaces for themselves when they've been shut out because they are women and they've been shut out because they're African Americans. And so I think, you know, she has led the way for so many and kind of. I, I, ha- I would be remiss if I didn't mention folks like Ida B. Wells, who ran for office um, 50 years prior or 30 years prior um, to her, but did not get elected. She ran for office. Ida B. Wells ran for office in Chicago. And so, you know, Shirley Chisholm is among this lineage of black women who were seeking elected office um, in their communities um, and other women like Fannie Lou Hamer and you need a Blackwell um, and current leaders like Summer Jackson Lee, Jasmine Crockett, Sheila Jackson Lee, uh, all of these women are kind of living legacies of Shirley Chisholm, Ida B. Wells, women who are making those contributions in politics um, by becoming elected officials. Yeah. It, yeah. If there's not a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. I, 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 I have to ask you, um, a tough question, but it's it's tougher for white people like me. I think. Mm-hmm. Why 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 was this courage and bravery so necessary? Why did white society work so hard at keeping their power and their their wealth in the face of what was so obviously um, an unjust, racist, and uh, you know, terrorizing society that that we had built down there in the South. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think power is a wild drug. <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. totally know the answer to why white people maintain or sought to maintain power in these very gross and destructive ways. Um, that would take, quite a while for me to engage with, but what I will say, um, and one thing that I appreciate about the women, the white women in my project who are imperfect, 
They are very imperfect. Um, but they were seeking ways to connect and understand. Um, and I think the sooner that we all realize that, you know, racism and white supremacy hurt all of us, the better we'll be able and equipped to eradicate racism and white supremacy. But no one wins um, when those things exist in our society. And I think by seeking connection and relationships in many of the same ways that women, other projects that my project were trying to do by learning about people who lived on the other side of the country, who they thought were really different from them, but realized that they had a lot in common as women and mothers living in rural communities. That I think that can help us um, push beyond some of the structures that have been put in place to keep keep us divided um, and to keep only a few people um, in power and at the top. So, um, yeah, that's a big question that maybe maybe you might be able to answer and think about with, but I, I, um, yeah, there's, Hard to say. Well, we'll you know, I, th- I think we'll, 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 what we'll do is we'll have you back on and we'll talk about just that question. Our, our guest <laughs> has been Dr. Pamela Walker. She's a professor of African-American and women's history at UVM. Uh, and her new book is going to be out next year called Sign Sealed Delivered, How Black and White Mothers Use the Box Project and the Postal System to Fight Hunger and Feed the Mississippi Freedom Movement. Uh, it'll be out next year. Dr. Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really, really enjoyed my time with you. It's Vermont on WDEV.